0: Another day, another dollar, makes you wonder where your money went, you can scream, and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough... Or even if they don't dictate, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. I'm expecting heavy winds, heavy rains... Lightning strikes, thunderstorms, and uh, other adventures on my ride today. Last night on the ride home, the time I got home, the uh, wife had the uh, storm kit out just in case. and We needed a little bit for some power outages, uh, but nothing major. But last night we had several tornadoes break out in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, One, actually, I should be driving by the area. Did it hit? I don't know if it did any damage or if it touched down or not. I haven't heard that much from the news people yet. Uh, But when I got home, um, they had a map up on the TV set saying, hey, there's a tornado on the ground near Parker and the the toll road, which I drive directly by there. So if I get there and I'm still recording today, and this might not be a day where that's going to happen, because even if this is a long show and I think it's going to be a shorter one than normal, Um, It's going to take me so long to get there today that I'll be done by the time I get there. But I'll let you guys know in the show notes if there is any damage visible. I have a feeling there isn't right there at that intersection. But anyway, I'll let you know. Just a a reminder that even when you think everything's calm, cool, and collected, that even if man doesn't do anything stupid, nature might do something dangerous that you might have to deal with. And uh, that was the case last night. And if you remember, I had said earlier, uh, I think this week, That uh, we had gotten through April and May in North Texas way easy from the event of severe and uh, tornadic thunderstorms. And uh, if we made it through June, then we would be, you know, pretty well uh, set. For the rest of the uh, the summer, especially if we get through the first part of July, that's really that May, April, May, June, first part of July time frame that we're in the kind of the target zone for some of the worst storms that happen in uh, in America during the summertime. But uh, we got one last night, kind of came out of nowhere. I don't even think it was really expected. I didn't get any alerts or anything until it was almost on us. So just remember that. And I, it's not what today's show is about, but I wanted to you know tell you what's going on here. That's just a typical day in uh, North Texas. We do it all the time. Can't evacuate for it like a hurricane or we'd never be home from, uh, well, I don't know, most years. Not this year, but most years from about April to, uh, to about July 20th. You might as well just leave and go somewhere else and come back and hope everything's still holding together. Uh, you got to kind of just sit through it. So uh, what are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about the Federal Reserve some, uh, because some comments that were made on my blog from yesterday's show, because I called hedge fund uh, people a vampire, and I'm not going to turn my opinion about that at all. I don't really hold anything against them, but what I mean by that is they're sucking other people's energy. And um, it's okay if you want to do that. If you want to play that part of the game, and it is a game, and by the end of the day, you'll understand that I'm not offending anybody or trying to offend anybody when I call a hedge fund person a vampire. Um, I'm just stating a fact based on the reality of how the entire system works. So we'll get into that in a second. Let's go ahead and knock out some house cleaning today. Uh, first, you know, uh, again, as I always say, support our advertisers. They're uh, there for us, and they're they're doing us a good job, and they're helping support the show, and they're they're making me more more independent to where I can put more time, effort, and uh, resources into doing this show and make it even better for you. Uh, Today's advertiser of the day is SOE Tactical Gear, John Willis' group. And as I always say when I mention John, he supported us when we didn't have very many people and we didn't have very much going on because he believed in what we were doing. So uh, turn the favor back whenever you get a chance to support John. Check him out before you buy other tactical gear. Uh, That's uh, a good way to help help support the show and help support a sponsor. Uh, next thing, I... Uh would ask you if you think you get 25 cents in value per show to consider joining the member support brigade get exclusive content available only to members on that note I got an email this morning telling me that the video page was gone and a bunch of affiliate crap which is kind of built into the system because uh, a lot of people use the same software I do to run like network mar- or, um, you know like how to internet market sites and stuff like that uh, so they have affiliate programs and whatnot. so all of a sudden that stuff was showing up and the video page was gone I had to go in and restore the database to yesterday. and uh, So what that means is if you joined as a new member of the Member Support Brigade yesterday, you may not be able to get in right now. Once I get into my office today, whenever that may be, and and clean up my morning, I will uh, restore manually everybody that joined yesterday. It was a pretty good group. I'd say four or five people joined yesterday. So I'll get you guys hooked back up and uh, I apologize for the inconvenience, but I had two choices. Uh, One, to have to manually re re or four members, or, or two, to completely rebuild the entire video page, and uh, that would have took longer and inconvenienced everybody instead of a few. So I made that decision the same way you would in a disaster area. Um, I think we'll just let House Cleaning go for that for today, and let's go ahead and get into uh, kind of the meat of today's show now. Now, I've talked about the Federal Reserve system. I've talked about the Fractional Reserve system before. I've told the story of how the Federal Reserve was created on Shanko Island. I'll tell all of that again today. I don't talk about this as much uh, as maybe I should, because I believe that a a large portion of the people listening to this show are aware of these things, and uh, I try to bring you guys new information, new ideas, new thoughts, rather than preach to the choir, so to speak. But everyone once in a while, I should really bring up the Fed and make people aware of what's going on, because we do have new people coming in all the time. I bet you if you come in from LouRockwell.com, you know what I'm going to say about the Fed. But if you come in from other sources, you may not. So I'll do that again today. But before we do that today, bringing those new ideas, new information to you, I want to start out with talking to you about how all monetary systems work. And some of this actually will sound a little metaphysical, and I guess in some ways. As it is. Um, it's definitely based on some some physical science laws of the universe as well, and it's based on collective intelligence. But what I want to talk to you today about, it, before we even talk about the Federal Reserve, so you can really start to see the flaws with it, is how any system of monetary Um, style operates and why they operate in the first place. I mean, money is a man-made invention. I mean, we really have to understand that. And I don't mean what's behind the money. And we'll get to that in a second. But the the entire concept of money itself was created by man. So we have to ask ourselves, given that money has both led to really great things and a lot of really bad things, why would we take the risk? Why would we create money in the first place? Well, let's go back to when there was no money. There was no such thing as uh, a currency, And we were mostly hunter-gatherers, and we were just on the dawn of man understanding harvesting and saving seeds and the beginnings of agriculture and actually starting to form little societies beyond a a group that wandered and just went wherever they, uh, they felt like until they could find something. At that point... These groups began to interact with each other. And, you know, for instance, I may come upon you and uh, say, hey, how you doing? You know, what's up? Whatever method of communication we have, whether we had a common language or not, is debatable in many situations. But, sorry if I'm distracted, because I just hit a bank of uh, mist rain. Anyway, um, but we would, you know, I would basically look over and say, oh, wait, this guy has a big cart full of wheat. He's on his way somewhere with it. And I have, you know, in my pack, a big pile of dried meat, because maybe I'm a hunter. And I would say, you know, I need some of that grain, and I bet this guy needs some meat. So one way or another, we'd communicate with each other, and I would show you the portion. And that's basically how bartering started. I would just decide, I'm willing to give up this much meat, and I'd just show it to you and point to your grain. And and the basic human understanding between people, even before this was a widespread thing would have been, oh, I understand what this guy wants. He's going to give, and I might ask you to taste a piece of the meat, see what you're really offering me. You might want to look at a piece of my grain, evaluate it, how good the quality is. And once that was done, I would then break off a portion of my grain, and I would display it to you, and I would say, basically, I'll give you this, and I might want more, and you might, you know, make, even with no common language, make a motion that, if you want more, eating more meat, I might throw another stick a dried meat on there, and you might throw a little bit more grain, and eventually we decide, yeah, we're going to do the deal, or we're not going to do the deal. And it was actually the most, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, the most equal state that mankind has ever been in. It was a society of equals. Because you couldn't hoard up any one commodity long term. There was no, you couldn't put your grain in the bank right grain will store a long time but it has a certain amount of bulk to it right you can't have one kernel of grain that represents Ten thousand kernels of grain, which is what we do with money. So the system, while it made people equal, was also limited. It also resulted in a point where I would come upon you with your cart full of grain, and I would show you some meat, and you'd say, "No, nah, I'm I'm good. I'm fixed up. I got all the dried meat I need. What else you got?" Maybe I'd pull out some leather goods, and you'd say, "Yeah, we we got goats. that's where the meat comes from. I got all the leather I need too. I really don't need that." Maybe you'd pull out a blade and say, "Hey." you know, what about this obsidian blade? And I'd say, I don't really need any of those either. And and if the deal couldn't be struck, right, the the downside of this was sometimes what would happen is, I might take that obsidian blade and put it to your throat because I've tried to trade with you and I need grain and you don't want to make a trade. That was one of the catalysts that created money. Because it actually would result in, at times, people simply deciding, well, if you won't take a trade for me, or if I'm not happy with the, the, the value of the trade, maybe I'll take it by force, was one problem. It was probably a minor problem, but it was a problem. Because most people that would do that wouldn't even, you know, the trade was just a pretense anyway. It was never going to happen. It's, it's outright theft. But the other side of this was, if we couldn't come to an agreement, I just didn't have anything you wanted, or you didn't have anything I wanted, well, we walked away And we weren't mad at each other. It was just I didn't find what I, you know, maybe I really needed some dye for the cloth that my village, you know, weaves. And it's very important that we get a certain kind of dye. And and you didn't have any dye. And even though I'm going to another place where I know they have that dye, I wasn't willing to take your grain because I don't know when I get there if that guy's going to need grain. We had no common denomination of exchange where I could go, well, That much grain is going to get me this much dye, and that's going to give me what I need, so I'm willing to make this deal now and then make the next deal. So we invented money. And that's why we invented money. We invented money so we had a portable method of common exchange. And the first monies weren't gold and silver, despite what all the people that sell gold and silver tell you. In many societies, money was actually made up of things that anybody could go out and collect. There were certain island nations um, in the South Pacific that actually used seashells as money, as currency. There were other groups that actually used stones with a hole in the center of them as a form of currency. And you'd say, well, if that was the case, couldn't you just go out and get a bunch of shells, string them together, and make your little money belts out of them? Or couldn't you just go out and get a bunch of rocks and cut holes in them? Well, you could. But because societies were still so much a society of equals at that point, people didn't do it. It wasn't worth it they only made enough as a society to account for the things that couldn't be bartered that was it that was all there was no more and that's kind of weird it's kind of odd that we would even think about the fact that society would naturally limit its 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 money its its you know financial arrangement that it would say we're going to put a cap on how much money we make and even even if the general population could go out and legally counterfeit money. So you live on an island, and there's a certain shell. It's maybe not the most common shell, but it's not that hard to find, because you need a bunch of them to make up enough of an exchange currency. So all you'd have to do is go down to the beach, and if you spent a couple months, you could save up enough shells to be quote-unquote wealthier than anybody else on the island, but yet people didn't do it. And there's a reason for it. In a small society, there's a natural understanding that if we had too much, many of these things for exchange, then they would no longer be based on the underlying barter item. Okay? So the Pacific Islander that was, you know, brilliant enough to figure out, in our society we would use this seashell as a form of currency. Understood that the seashell wasn't the currency, that what it represented was fruit, fish, salt, or work. Okay, It was food or effort it was represented by the shell. And the entire society collectively, intuitively understood, if we go out and get every shell like this and bring it into our currency, then we'll devalue the currency, where now instead of me giving you two shells for a fish so that I can, you know, have a fish, and you can take those two shells and go over to, you know, another guy and give him one shell for some salt for storing your fish, you would need 100 shells to buy the salt, and I would need 200 shells to buy the fish, and it would ruin everything. I want you to really think about this, that societies using rocks and shells have actually functioned with a currency system that worked. Now, you have to ask yourself why we have such a dysfunctional currency system. Well, one of the things is because it's so daggone big. And we've created inflation to a point where we've devalued our own currency to we're almost in an unending spiral. But that's how money works. It's all that it is is a representation of the commodities that it's used to purchase, okay? It is nothing else. Even, and I know the folks that are out there. Gold and silver have real value, okay? About to dispel that myth for you. Now, if you've listened to this show a lot, you're not going to have any problems here. But if you haven't, you might have a real problem with this. So let me say before I go forward, I think gold and silver are good places to put some portion of your money because of what society is doing and has done and will continue to do. So I'm not saying they're bad investments. But I'm saying they're not real money either. Okay? Okay. You have to think about what made the shells and the stones a form of currency for a primitive people. Was it the fact that the stone had real value? It's a piece of sandstone with a hole in it. Is it really worth anything? Could you go somewhere and buy something with it in the United States? No. But that society had collectively agreed to a certain value upon that stone. Simple, easy to understand. There's 20 of us in the community to make the community microcosm, small. Easy to understand. We have a thousand stones that circulate between the 20 of us. right? And we all do work, and we all do labor, and we all put out output, and we all put out effort. And we all have things to trade with each other. So collectively we agree that one stone is worth about one fish. And since one fish can be traded for five papayas, that one stone is also worth about five papayas. And the guy that goes and picks the papayas, if somebody wants his papayas, but they don't have anything he wants, he'll take one in five. We just agree upon that. That's how it works. That's how gold and silver works. As a society and as a huge global society, we've agreed that gold is worth X number of American dollars an ounce, Y number of, you know, Australian dollars an ounce, and C number of Canadian dollars an ounce because of the value that those currencies have against each other. That is it. That is all. There is nothing really special about gold, silver, platinum. As a substance, Okay? In fact, the reality is, of the three, for practical applications, gold is the most useless among them. Platinum is used in catalytic converters in cars. It has a lot of electronic applications. Gold could be used for a lot of them, but it just is not. Because silver is the big one. Silver is used more in industry than either of the other two metals. I'd say it's because it's more affordable, but the reality is it has certain characteristics that make it more valuable than many other metals, including copper, which is even less expensive than silver. So silver is the most useful of the precious metals. It's also the one that's actually used up, and it's actually being reduced in total quantity. So in reality, silver should be the most expensive of the three, but it is not because we collectively have agreed in society that hanging a gold chain around in your, on your neck has more status than ha- hanging a silver one. And we've agreed that hanging a white gold platinum chain has even more status. But it's only because, it's only because society has agreed to that. If everybody tomorrow were hypnotized into the belief that I don't like gold anymore. I think it's useless. Its only purpose is to be a wire in a radio or something like that. It has no commodity value on a status level. It is not, and it's not tied to currencies and it doesn't mean anything. Tomorrow morning, gold will be completely useless. You can't eat it. So, gold, silver, platinum are just another form of currency that have been collectively agreed upon in society. But, like the seashell, Okay? And like the stone. And this is what makes this simple primitive people so much smarter than people like the Federal Reserve. Okay? Gold and silver are finite. There is a limit to how much can be mined and accumulated in any one place. And even a paper currency against a gold standard or a silver standard or a gold and silver standard. Has a finite limit of growth behind it, and the the dollars that are in there, or whatever you want to call them, basically, you know, the yen, the it doesn't the euro, it doesn't matter, whatever's being issued against them has a ceiling to how many could ever be issued. That retains the value of them, because now I'm going to switch gears for you, and I'm going to tell you how the Federal Reserve works. I'm not going to get into Treasury notes and everything like that today, and how all the countries interact, and how it's basically a giant Ponzi scheme. I'm going to keep it very, very simple today, and simply explain it to you this way. When the U.S. government wants more money, they just phone up the Federal Reserve and say, make more money. And then, through a process that really amounts to international lending and borrowing, they issue a a Treasury note. And then against that Treasury note, they issue a Federal Reserve note to the U.S. That is your money. That is your dollar. That note is when you pull out your $1 bill and look at the picture of good old George on there, you say this is a Federal Reserve note. Right? It is not backed by anything other than the goodwill and faith and collective agreement of its value of the American people and because we're in a global economy, the rest of the world. So the rest of the world has a great deal of say on how many Canadian dollars, let's say, you can buy with an American dollar. Or how many Japanese yen you can buy with an American dollar. Okay, It's, it's all, again, still a collective agreement in society. The difference is that the Fed can basically print as much money as they want. Now, what the defender of the Fed would say is, well, since the Fed has to actually sell treasuries, either to U.S. citizens or to foreign governments, in order to then print money against them, there's a a finite limit there. Well, the problem is that the finite limit wasn't respected, and we're rapidly approaching it. And the finite limit is where... You know, we phone up China and say, hey, you guys want to buy some T-bills today? We're auctioning off $15 billion worth of them. They go, no, 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 we have enough. We don't need no more. Right? We phone up the the, the English and they go, "No, sorry, mate, don't need any more. Right? We start phoning up the rest of the world and they don't buy any more. So what does the Fed do then? It uses its own phony money to buy its own T-bills and keeps printing anyway. If you keep doing this long enough, what happens is the value of the dollar starts to go down. So right now you say to yourself, well, why the hell is oil going back up? right? Why, why is oil going up? Why is gas going up? There's no shortage. There's still a global recession in place. Supply and demand's not out of whack. There's more supply than there is demand. Well, it's because your dollar buys less. Okay, Plain and simple. You're, oil's going up for the same reason gold's gone up some. Your dollar's worth less. So when, when we phone up, you know, the, the Saudis and say, hey, we'd like to buy 100 billion barrels of oil, they say, yeah, give us your money. And we say, well, you know, you've been selling it for $40 a barrel. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what, the price hasn't changed. But the value of your money's changed. That, my friends, is inflation. That's how it works. Now let me tie it all together for you and explain how it's an inescapable debt trap that, that will never ever escape from unless we get rid of the Fed unless we completely change the monetary system or we go to a completely commodity based and energy based society with no currency there's actually people that think we can do it I'm not totally sold on the idea yet but I'm open to looking at it so it's got to be better than the mess that we've made with this here's how this really works let's assume let's go back to our little society of 20 people. In our little island nation, right? And it's me, it's you, and it's 18 other people. And we have our little agreement about what the shells are worth, the seashells are worth. And everybody looks around and says, Jack, you understand this system, better than anybody else here. We've had shortages. Tom's not had any shells. Nobody's wanted what he's had. He hasn't been able to borrow shells from anybody because nobody knows that he's going to be able to pay them back because, you know, the fishing's been down. So we need a system here uh, where, you know, maybe you can reserve some extra shells, okay? And then that way, when we need some more circulation, you'll control when they enter our group of 20, and you will control when they exit our group of 20. My friends, that's exactly what the Federal Reserve does. But here's what I say, well, look, okay, guys, um, you know, this isn't something I want to do for, for fun. There's got to be an incentive for me. I need to make some shells myself in profit out of this. And, and you say, well, that, that sounds reasonable. We're asking you to provide a service. We know that you're the one to do it, so you want to make a profit That's okay. I mean, I make a profit when I sell my fish. He makes a profit when he sells his salt. She makes a profit when she sells her mangoes. Why shouldn't you make a profit with money? I said, great. Here's what I'll do. I will charge interest every time I issue your shells to you. And you'll pay me back when you you know, come back on the loan and make good on it with an interest rate of, let's say, for every 20 shells I give you, you give me 21 shells back. And everybody looks around and says, that sounds... Completely fair. Does And you say, okay, but here's the thing, guys. The first thing you have to do is everybody has to gather up every shell that they have, all right? And we'll put all the shells into my bank, the Reserve Bank of Shells, okay? We'll go acquire some additional shells to create that reserve. I will hold them in a different compartment of reserve. I will then issue your shells back back to you as a loan to start the system and, and basically you'd say well that means i have to give you my money and you give it back to me and now it's a loan and i say yes that's how it works now in a twenty man society that would be like yeah you know we're not going to do this because that's bullshit, and that doesn't make any sense. How about we all keep our shells? We'll all put some money into your bank, and then you issue additional funds as necessary. It was the original banking system before it fell apart and went into this fractional reserve system? Well, in our hypothetical world, to say I'm the greatest salesman in the world, and I sell you on the fact that that just will not work. See, if I do that. Then the problem is that there's shells in the economy that I cannot account for. And I'm managing, but I'm not being paid to manage them. So I talk you into the deal. And everybody gives me their shells. Okay? And I go out and I get a thousand reserve shells. And I put them in my reserve pot. Now, those can be issued into the economy of the island at any time that I want to. What I've issued you guys is I've issued you your own money back for debt. So let's say that you personally gave me 500 shells. I gave you your 500 shells back, but now your shells are a certificate for debt to me. And for every 20 shells, you owe me 21. That was the agreed-upon interest rate on the shells. Okay? Okay. This is hard, but please follow it, because by the time I get done, you're going to see how screwed up our economy really is, and how screwed up this Federal Reserve System really is. So if you get your little shell calculator out and say, well, if it's one for 20, and you've given me 500, that means that you now owe me 525 shells. So yesterday, you had 500 shells and no debt, Today, you have 500 shells and a debt of 25 shells. Okay? This is the shell game. That's why I chose shells instead of stones. Now, if you want to pay me back, you can take your 25 shells and give them to me. I'll put them in my bank. Maybe I'll even offer you an interest rate of every year that I hold 40 shells... I'll give you one additional shell in the account that I hold for you. But now I take your 25 shells and I loan them to the fisherman because he's got to do some expansion of his fishing business. He needs some new nets from the guy that makes the nets. Okay? Now... He then takes, you know, remember, all the money he has is already debt back to me anyway. But now I issue him more shells. But now, since it's actually a formal loan, I charge him one shell interest for every ten shells that I pay out. Now, here's what I want you to realize the coup de grace in all of this. When we set up this society with this shell game, I said, look, guys. I know that there's shells down on that beach. But for this system to work, people can't go collect those shells and use them. So I'm going to have this little stamp... It's an official shell stamp that makes the shell from a shell into a shell dollar. And when I create new money, I'll put this mark in the shell. And I'm the only one that can make this mark. And anybody that's caught making this mark on a shell goes to the jail, the island jail. Because only I can issue, create, and loan our shell currency. So what would happen... On any given day where I called all my loans due, remember, for every 20 shells in circulation, I'm owed one additional shell. And I'm the only one that makes the shells. I'm the only one that has surplus shells. And surplus shells can't come from anywhere else. They can only come from me. I decide what gets issued and what gets pulled back. I can bankrupt the entire island overnight. Because there's no, there are not enough shelves in existence to ever pay the money back. The entire system is based on debt. Now, our little island nation realizes, hey... We can't limit ourselves to here. There's certain things that we don't have. So we sail our little boat about 50 miles away, and we find another island. And we find out they've set up a very similar situation. They're using shells, too. Those shells have a different mark. Collectively, we, we look at each other as a society. We realize, well, you guys have more people and more stuff and more capabilities. So your one shell is worth two of our shells, and we create currency exchange. But if both societies are being run by a reserve bank, you still have the same problem. Now, you can keep the game going for longer, right? But... The society itself can never be free of debt. Now, what happens when I get on my boat and I cruise over to this other island and I go meet their chairman of their shell bank and I say, Hi, I'm chairman of Island 1 Shell Bank. He says, I'm Island 2. So I say, you know, we should really work together for the greater good of society. Okay, I mean, you're smart and I'm smart and these people, they just spend the shells. They don't really get how this game works. Works, so why don't we work together to stabilize the exchange rates between our society? And eventually we bring a hundred little islands into this game. Now, our hundred people that are each running their little shell games may never be elected to any office. But they own the entire conglomerates of islands. And they can manipulate and can control all the islanders anytime they want through the issuance and the exchange of shells with different stamps on them. Okay, And because I've broken this down to each little island having maybe 20 or 30 people on it, it's easy to understand. Now something else is going to happen inside these little micro societies there's going to be people that understand the game maybe not completely and they can't play it the way that the the hundred island fed people can, the hundred island chairman people can, right? but they can play it on their own level and what they figure out is if I build a hut I get a lot of shells now since I'm a hut builder I'll build myself Alpha Hot! Once I build myself a hut, I'll never need another hut for myself. So every time I build a hut, I can get a surplus of shells, and that creates a wealthy class in a fractional reserve system. The people that can actually produce not only what's expensive and valuable, but produce it for themselves so that they're not dependent upon the currency exchange system for their own need. That's why a lot of people that build houses for a living have great big beautiful houses that on their technical salary they could never afford, because they provide their own labor to build it for themselves. But the really smart business people like that become extremely wealthy, and they put a bunch of their own shells back into the shell bank. All right? Now, I'm the chairman of Island One, right? and I've got my little 100-man group that we meet you know, every once in a while. That's the World Bank, folks. And we make these decisions, but i started to have real prosperity on my island. I've started to bring in enough shells from surrounding islands, that my island is becoming even wealthier than most of the other islands around it. And we're expanding, and we're doing great things, and we're starting to put in new types of things in society. We're creating education and religion and everything else that's good about society. And a lot of my wealthy customers, because now they're all my customers, are taking money and putting it into my bank. Well, I want a return on it. So I start loaning it to other members of of my island and I loan it to other islands in the currency exchange scheme and we all just keep doing this and anytime one of the chairmen don't have enough money to play their little game as they manipulate their little societies they just you know ring up on the coconut telegraph one of the fellow islanders and say, hey, do you got any surplus you can put in my bank so I can issue more shells? And the guy says, sure, because he knows that he can issue more shells anytime he wants to, and the whole thing just runs that way. And it has the earmarks of being very stable, but what you have is one-tenth of one percent of the population completely controlling and dominating through the leverage of debt A group of people that used to be completely free. And the people that used to be completely free don't even know that they've become slaves. They think what they see in front of them is progress. Now, folks, there's a constant in the universe. it's, It's true in marketing. It's true in atomic physics. It's true anywhere. And that is when something works on a small scale a certain way, if you expand it to a larger area and you expand it to scale so that everything's functioning the same way, it will work in a larger scale as well. You could probably very clearly see how these 100 chairmen of these 100 islands on a shell-based currency, where the shell is made into money by stamping it, where only those 100 people have the authority to make those stamps and make those inter-island deals and set values, how those 100 people would completely control the rest of that little mini-world. Well, folks... That's the world you live in today. I hate to break the news to you. That's what the Federal Reserve has bought you, or brought you, I should say. Right now, if you think you're flush with cash, if you're you're you know you just got paid because you, your company pays in the middle of the week, and you went to the bank and you said, "I'll put money in the bank," and you cashed your check, and you have a A wad of $800 in cash in your pocket. You think you have money? In a way you do because of the collective agreement of society. And because the guy that fishes, the guy that makes huts, will accept your currency as a form of payment and a form of barter. But what you're really holding on to is $800 plus debt. That we collectively as a society owe back to our masters at the Federal Reserve. Every penny in your pocket is a certificate for debt. And here's what's happened in our societies the chairman's have lost all ethics, and they've stopped printing their little stamp on shelves. They've now decided that I'll make shells worth more just by changing the insignia on the stamp. Ones, five, tens, twenties, hundreds, thousands. And then they went another step further, a little, you know, pseudo-society, a little uh, hypothetical world. They developed the computer, the coconut computer, the ability to have an electronic abacus. Right? That's what a computer really is. It counts ones and zeros. And they decided they will just give everybody in the island the ability to spend shells, which are certificates to debt, to buy enough computer systems, their little coconut computers, that they can all see money. And they've started to remove the shells out of the system as a physical means of currency, and they've made little dots on the coconut screen replace the actual hard currency money. There was never really anything more than an agreement in the first place. They've exposed it for what it is, a collective agreement of society, but society has failed to remember that that's what it was and has become tricked by the illusion. And now they can just make as much as they want. So that Joe, the guy that builds huts, that was becoming wealthy, in the beginning of this society, has now built enough huts that most people don't need a hut. He only builds a few huts a year now. And some people build their own huts. So they only call on Joe when they absolutely need him. So his production is down. But he's felt really good because he's put his money in the bank and he's saved up his shells. But I the chairman of the island bank has simply continued to issue more and more shells whenever I felt like it, and one of, whenever one of my buddy chairmen needed some for a currency exchange scheme. So the money that Joe put in the bank that he thought was had a value of 10,000 shells, and it did when he first put it in there, today only has a value, a true value, in our economy of 1,000 shells. And he is as big a slave to me. Is the guy that we give a few shells to every week with our island welfare program because he doesn't have any actual skill that anybody wants. That's our economic system, people. That's how it works. And you have to remember at any time any one of these people, any one of these groups of people because it's not one guy. Ben Bernanke doesn't do this. Ben Bernanke is a mouthpiece for the people that you will never see that actually do this. The little see little meetings that Ben has with his little group of people that are all appointed by the president, those guys are all mouthpiece, those guys are all an illusion the real guy, the me, in our little hypothetical world, behind the scenes, and his little group of cronies you never see those people they're never in public, they're the wealthiest people in the world and what those meetings are about with Ben and his boys, aren't what they're going to do, it's how they're going to explain what they've been told they're going to do So, there you go. I know this isn't a real exciting, encouraging show today, but it actually should be empowering. It should make you realize that everything about the economy is a game. And I followed up yesterday's show with this for a reason. Your true wealth is not money. Money is a way, based on what society has decided, that you can leverage your efforts to create The true wealth for yourself. Because our guy Joe on the island, if Joe took that money, okay, and he built his hut, a badass hut, the exact kind of hut he wanted. He bought his own fishing boat and his own fishing net. And he only started building houses for other people when he saw somebody that really needed it and wanted the special type of hut that he was capable of building. And when he didn't feel like fishing, if he said, you know what, Tom? Screw those assholes over there with these shells. You know what? You need your hot roof fixed. I can fix a hot roof like nobody else, Tom. And you are a badass fisherman. I need some fish. I'll tell you what, Tom. I don't really need much more money. I've kind of set my life up the way that I want it. I've got my little shell computer to give me access to what everybody else is doing and my little shell radio, you know? I've got my little car. I've got everything that I really need. And I've even put this thing up on my roof with all these palm fronds, and it spins around, and it gives me enough of that electricity stuff that we invented a few years ago. So I'm not really interested in more shells, but I'd sure like some fish. How about I fix your roof the next time you go fishing, you give me some fish. And that little segment of society starts to break away and go back to the old ways of barter. And they only use money when they work outside of the system of people willing to accept it, and they only use money mostly as a way to buy things that last and will provide for them long term, then they get to win the game because eventually they opt out of all or a portion of it. And they take what they have of value and they use it as a way to create enough of this fake phony currency to pay off the wolves and keep them at bay until the rest of society wakes up and figures out there's only a hundred of them and there's millions of us and we've had enough of this shit. So that's your empowerment at the end. So think about the things that I said yesterday. And this, if this is your first show, go back and listen to yesterday's show, and you'll see how the two are tied together. And you'll see how understanding this illusion is one of the most powerful things that can happen. And if you've ever tried to explain to somebody how our currency system is a scam and they haven't understood it, have them take a listen to this show. Tell them they'll have to pause, they'll have to think, they'll have to accept, and they'll have to be patient to get the lesson. But it's worth having, because once you understand it, you won't be easily fooled in the future. And you'll see the games that are played for what they are. And when you choose to play, you'll know that you're playing, you'll know how you're playing, you'll know why you're playing, and you'll know what your definition of winning is. And hopefully that'll help you figure out how to live that better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream. You can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent